Gorbachev tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. little cold war show the show that we do by reading books my name is cameron riley how are you papa bear doing okay um were they thick books because mine had a lot of pictures and were pretty thin yeah <laughs> and uh big fold-out poster yes. in the middle i uh, love those i look forward i, I save it till the end and then i open it up it's pretty exciting big 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 uh, centerfold of Churchill <laughs> naked, oiled up in front of a fireplace on a bear rug, oh, bottle of champagne. You don't want to get me aroused this early in the night, Cam. You really don't. <laughs> I saw the only review that we've received uh, in the last month right. is like two lines, oh. and it's some guy saying it's not very well written, even though it says it's from Australia. The uh, <coughs> English uh, is not great, but it says something like. Uh, these guys think history is funny. <laughs> we go, yeah, yes. Yes, we do. Oh, yes. It's ironic, and that's we, what makes it funny. It's sad. It's funny. Yeah. It's, uh, it's macabre. It they right. think that it, they th- not happy quit the <laughs> podcast, W-H-I-T. They think that history is a joke. They made brainwash to people wit left-wing ideology. We do brainwash to wit. <laughs> Anywho, so, so let's no no. So for these next three episodes, right? No no laughing, no chuckling, no joking around, right? No none at all. Deadly serious. Um, before we get into that, Ray, um, yeah. I want to say the words testicular fortitude. <laughs> That's specifically for uh, our listener Scott Burbick from the United States, right? He wants us to use that term whenever we say somebody had a lot of balls. He wants us to say testicular fortitude. And I promised him I would say that in this episode. So right. it's said now. Right. But uh, it's a drinking game. Uh, every time oh. we say testicular oh. fortitude, I can make it come up again. No pun intended. I can make it come up again. It will definitely be All said again. Then. What episode number is this? 94. 94. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, and these are the episodes that I have been waiting to do like when we when we said we were going to do the cold war straight off the bat i was like right. oh my Jump god right i'm gonna have it. a field day talking about the you know the the bombing of japan and the marshall plan and right. the next few episodes boys and girls are going to be on the marshall plan yeah because uh, i have long believed that it is one of the greatest pieces of mythology to ever be produced in america mm. we have a lot of them uh well, you do. I mean, it's right up there with the idea of glorifying the founding fathers, who were actually just tax gods. dodgers who orchestrated oh, right, right. A, a violent and bloody coup. Lesser gods. Um, but the Marshall Plan is also one of America's greatest pieces of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I've, I, for years, I've been researching the Marshall Plan to no avail, really. I mean, Ben Steele, uh, we had him on the show recently to talk about it a few months back. Right. Um, and he's a nice enough guy. Yeah. But even his book on it doesn't really address what I think is the, the core idea of the Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to do over the next few episodes is break it open. And, and see what was really going on, how it came to be, why it came to be, mm-hmm. what the impact of it was. We're not going to go into the nitty-gritty, but we're, we're going to, yeah. at a high level, break it open and, and, and talk about it. Because, again, I think it's one, of, it's one of the most important pieces of foreign policy that any country has done in the last 100 years. Secondly, yeah. it's one of the least understood and that's not just me saying that. Uh, no. Pretty much every uh, uh, book about it, except Ben Steele's, that I've read that's been written in the last 20, 30 years says the same thing. Marshall Plan's not very well understood. Hasn't been very well studied, right. let alone being very well understood by the, the, the general public, the great unwashed. Um, ben Steele wrote a major book on it. There had been other books written about it. I've got a dozen of them. But um, they, they all, I think, including Ben Steele's, missed the point. And I didn't want to get into that right. with him when we had him on the sure. show yeah. because I wasn't ready. Right. And no, now, ready now, by gun. Had, yeah. Yeah. If he was here right and now. We might get him back on. Oh, oh, oh wow. Oh. I, would, I would give him what for. <laughs> <laughs> you know why? You Harvard economist. You know why you come here and tell me what to think? Do you know why you'd give him what for? Why? Because you got testicular fortitude, why? my friend. That's why. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I did it. Everybody drink. I'm going to drink. <laughs> me too. Oh. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Five minutes in. You've got one yeah. in there. Just for you, Scott B. <laughs> um,. Yeah. Now, the Marshall Plan, Ray, is, yeah. is sold to Americans as the greatest gift mankind has ever received since Jesus died on the cross. <laughs> I think a, that's fair. Sounds about right. Say. Yeah. Accurate. Yeah. And even today, 70-odd years later, it's almost impossible to find any analysis, any writing about the Marshall Plan that doesn't position it as a gift or as humanitarian aid. Absolutely, but the truth. Yeah, but the truth is, yeah, it was neither of those things. The Marshall Plan was completely self-serving. Doesn't sound right. That's not what I was taught in school. <laughs> you weren't taught anything about <laughs> the Marshall Plan in school. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what I was taught. Two things: one, the United States won the war, and then two, the United States saved the world with the Marshall Plan. So up you and up your horses. Mm. And look, I, I'm not. I'm not here to say that the Marshall Plan had no value and that it was. Right. It was. But we're going to break it crap. down. What I'm. Yeah. What I'm saying is, it wasn't a gift. Right. And it wasn't about humanitarian aid. No. Humanitarian aid may have been a side effect of what <clears throat> it was. Right. But that wasn't the point or the purpose. Exactly. Or not. Certainly not the sole point or purpose, and probably not even the most important point or purpose from the point of view of the American strategists. Yeah, the one who wrote it. Um, and I think by and I think by understanding 
more about the Marshall Plan, we can use it to understand a lot of other things that um, that we see come out of not just the United States, yeah. but all countries, my country as well. Whenever I see my country talking about giving humanitarian <laughs> aid right. to another country, um, I, I go, okay, all right, what, yeah, what, what's really going what's on? What's it going to cost me? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, and and who's really doing a deal here? Right. So we'll see. Right. Anyway, so I'm, I'm so like like with all these things, I know I, I tend I can tend to be uh, uh, come across as extremely cynical about uh, the United States, and I'm going to try really hard not to do that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I've got seventy years of propaganda I need to balance up in three hours. So <laughs> I, I've got to I've got to drive my point home. <laughs> Is uh, how I feel yeah. about it. Well, yeah. I'll try to be fair, like Fox News. I'm going to be fair right. and balanced, but uh, definitely come at this with an opinion. Sure. Now, you will often also hear about the Marshall Plan, and this is a, this is a, a more of a revisionist perspective. Certainly, wasn't the way it was sold uh, initially. Mm-hmm. To the people, but these days historians will talk about it not just as a gift or as humanitarian aid, but it was about stopping the Soviets yeah. from spreading communism. It was part of the containment plan, right. and consequently, it was also about stopping another world war uh, because. Yeah. For some reason, they figured if the Soviets expanded, then they would need to go and stop them, and there'd be another war, and that would be. Expensive, right. cost lives as well as money. And that's also missing the point of the Marshall Plan, those things. Oh, again, sort of partially true, yeah. but not really what the Marshall Plan, I think, was, was for and about. Right. But for the US as a whole, and particularly for Truman, the Marshall Plan was a genius move. Now, it was also, and I'll explain this in more detail as we go, And this, to me, is the point. The Marshall Plan was, at the time, the single biggest transfer of wealth from the public treasury into the hands of the business elite of the United States during peacetime, probably in history. Can you back that up with anything? Because that doesn't sound right. I can back it up with facts, but I... From have books? to I have to yeah. warn you. Yeah. I got them from books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> D- did you want to um, save some of that for once we get to that part in the timeline when we pass it, or are you just giving an overall yes. analysis? I'm just trying to. Yeah, I'm going to. And this, this is out. this is. Yeah, no, no. This is I'm, I'm I'm sort of giving the high level the introduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just I'm I'm blowing gently <laughs> in your ear with this, and then been there. As we go, I'll, I'll get my tongue right in there. Um, but nearly no one understands that. Now, <laughs> to me, this seems obvious, but I, I have been reading, trying to read up on this, as I said, for years, and, and very, very, very little, a tiny, tiny percentage of anything that talks about the Marshall Plan talks about the wealth transfer aspect of it. It's just, it doesn't get talked about. Like, it never happened. Right. I, I, um, I want to inter- which is fascinating. I want to interject my Americanism for a second, and you're absolutely right. The different books, the different articles, everything I read, you had to actually go uh, decades before you get that. It, 
that that level of perception that 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 evaluation of the of the wealth transfer but i think at the time and and i'm not being flippant but i think at the time that this was coming out that might have been considered gauche um to talk about that was it was it that absolutely was but because it was so wrapped up in stopping communism and patriotism and we're trying to help the, uh, the these people and and these are issues that the average american cannot understand i i think it was just something that was not done now that might sound silly in in our day and age when we're very very cynical and we like to get right to the facts of things but i think at the time that that was just something that was there and those people who knew what was going on knew about it but you you wouldn't talk about it. You wouldn't write it down. You wouldn't put it in your diary. It, it wouldn't be in a conversation. I just don't think it was done um, at the time. But th- and not that that excuses any of that, because that's exactly what it was. They took from the American people and they gave it to the business class. And, and we'll we'll go into all that later. But but you're absolutely right. It was, as far as I can tell, the massive, the largest wealth transfer almost in our history up until recent times. I think you're right that it was considered gauche, and uh, I mean, one person. I came across what? one person really? who was talking about it at the time. Mm. There might have been more, but only one that I could find evidence of, and I we'll, think I we'll get to that, that yeah. person as we go. Mm. Yeah, but even today, even Ben Steele doesn't really talk about it in his book. Um, it's one of those things that only one or two people sort of talk about. Anyway, yeah. So let's let's provide a bit of background. Obviously, um, Europe had been pretty much flattened by World War II. Yeah. And then in, 19, in the winter of 1946-1947 was the worst in 100-plus years. Wow. Widely believed to have been the snowiest winter since 1813-14. Not the coldest, right. but the snowiest winter yeah. since then. It was known as a hunger winter. Uh, I don't know if you went and dug up stuff on that. I looked at, uh, I saw some, there's some videos on YouTube and uh, photographs, um, mostly from the the British perspective of it. Sure. They got hit particularly hard. Uh, I guess uh, people in the rest of Europe weren't walking around with video cameras. Uh, They were too busy, like. Trying to survive. Eating eating each other. Yeah. 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 Um, but it was particularly bad. So on top of everything being still destroyed, not being any food, uh, not being any infrastructure, people had to deal with 20 feet of snow for that winter. So things were particularly tough. And of course, as we know, uh, during the war, the, the Germans, the British and the Americans had been carpet bombing civilian populations uh, for years right across England and, and Europe so railways bridges roads had been blown up factories had been smashed farms and fields Jeez. had been destroyed by bombing and tank battles and firefights houses office buildings everything just just flattened like you, you look at uh, and see video of places in Syria today. Uh, or right. Iraq during the last war, you, we get a sense for what this is like. Just yeah, yeah just yeah. just where there was a nice little city um, happening uh, one day today, just it's just rubble. Yeah, and I and we've all seen that. We've all seen the photos of, of 
Berlin and stuff like that after the war, just just flattened, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, if I remember correctly, I think roughly forty percent of the houses in Germany were uninhabitable, uninhabitable, um, just literally just raised to the ground. It's not like you can just kind of get in there and and survive the storm or the snow or whatever. I mean, these places are destroyed. So just imagine forty percent of the houses in a country. Are just leveled. You've got you've got um, millions of people were brought in as slave labor by the Nazis, and so there's actually more people there than there normally would be, and they're all kind of stuck there because where wherever you were at when the war ended is kind of where you're going to be stuck at for a while. So it's, it's super, you know, it's got all the snow. The people are starving, and this starving is going to go on for years. I think it was even two years after the war, Britain was still on a ration program, so so no one has it easy. Except for, I would say, relatively speaking, the Americans, because they haven't suffered all of this stuff. But the, but the entire Western continent is just going through something that I think few people can understand. Well, houses may have been destroyed, but luckily millions of people died, so, so they didn't need all the houses right. that they had. Right. <laughs> Don't yeah. think it totally balanced out, but some some. It helped. Go, well, I can't believe we're saying this, you know, but it helped. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and here, here's the other part. These old European powers, France and Britain, like we were saying in the last episode, they just don't have the money anymore. Most of their reserves are gone because they were giving it all to the United States. They are unable to financially take care of not only their colonies, but to take care of the people of Europe uh, who are going through this time. They just do not have the economic means anymore. Those days are gone. And... When you look at the old European colonial powers, mostly Britain and France, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously they had to pull out of a lot of their colonial possessions after World War II for a variety of reasons. They couldn't couldn't afford to maintain uh, armies and control of them in some cases. Um, And also, you know, the, the, the Americans insisted on it. We know that was part of the Atlantic Charter although they made exceptions for France and Indochina and things like that. And, but, you know, generally speaking, they were supposed to pull out mm-hmm. or, or at least open it up to uh, outside of a trading block to an right. open-door trading policy. Right. And what's the point of having all of these places if you can't control their trade? That's, that's the whole that's point of exactly. having colonial possessions in the first place. Um, but also we have to, we have to recognise that those colonial possessions were a big part of the economies of these countries. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were customers of their manufacturing and they were also sources of raw materials. So when you lose control of your colonial possessions, that's going to have an impact on your economy as well, a huge impact. So, so that's adding to their financial woes. Absolutely. And as bad as everything is that we've just mentioned, it's about to get worse. And this is where the Americans are really concerned. So they're out of the left-wing parties that are in Europe, and a lot of them are poised to take power in their various countries because, and I think we said this on the last episode, they are 
almost like um, Atlee in Britain here, like, you know, forget everything. It is all about taking care of the people we have suffered. I don't want to hear anything about blue bloods. I don't want to hear anything about status and all that kind of stuff. We're going to come up with radical ideas to deal with this economic deprivation that we're going through. And, and they were basically saying what the people wanted to hear, what the people needed to hear. So you've got all these left-wing parties in Europe that are suddenly very popular and they're growing in power. You've got them in Greece and Italy and France. And the ironic thing is because some of them are communists, they either owed loyalty to Moscow, who you have to be honest and say, kicked the shit out of the Germans for us in World War II, or they were supported by Moscow when when they were first developing. So there's a certain amount of loyalty going to Moscow, and now these these uh, parties are poised to, to be in power. Uh, so again, it's 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 not only dire for everybody, but now it's getting politically and economically tricky for the Americans. Yeah, I want to drill down on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on top of the complete destruction of their economies and their infrastructure and the deaths of tens of millions of people, Europeans after World War II were starting to come to the realisation that they sucked. Right. Um, Our system sucks. You know, at the, be- at the beginning of the 20th century, European countries generally saw themselves as superior to the rest of the world. Right. Uh, you know, I think it went without saying that the Europeans saw themselves as an advanced civilization compared to yeah, like even America. Right. So, exactly. But in the space of 30 years, these powerful, sophisticated countries had fought each other <laughs> in two wars, not only killed tens of millions of their citizens, but injured tens of millions more, and it effectively stripped themselves of the rank of being first-class powers. Mm-hmm. Even Great Britain, who was victorious yeah. in both wars, ended up devastated. Wow. Um, so, you know, the, the whole idea of European civilization being superior must have seemed a bit like a cruel joke by <laughs> 1945. Right. Superior civilizations don't elevate warmongers to positions of absolute political power and then destroy themselves in uh, a series of brutal wars. They don't bombard defenceless citizens or send conscripted soldiers to certain death in battle after battle or attempt to commit genocide of the Jews or you name it. The European way of politics by 1945 had proven to be a complete fucking disaster. And now, I mean, just imagine that kind of soul searching. And when you're you're speaking of soul searching, you're not talking about mainly the 1%. You're talking about the average person. You're talking about the middle class who who generally, if they can ever get organized, can run a country. I mean, you've got, you've got an entire continent of people who are reviewing their pretty much every aspect of their lives and going, we can't, we've got to do something different. This cannot continue the way it has been. Yeah. People were looking for a change, dramatic changes. Right. And so, as you said, political movements rose to address those needs, that, that need for change, and most of them were left-leaning because all of these superior European countries, quote-unquote, had been capitalist right. before World War II. 
And yes, even Nazi Germany. I know there are still some people out there who probably think the Nazis were socialists because it was called the National Socialist (laughs) Party. But no, they weren't socialists. They hated socialists. They were... Fascism is basically an extreme form of capitalism. It's where... Nationalism, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the Italian version under Mussolini and the German version under Hitler was slightly different in various ways. But at the end of the day, they both believed in private property mm-hmm. and a market economy. They just wanted it to serve the state. Yeah. So the state got to control it. But it was still private property, private corporations, uh, a market-based economy. So that's essentially the basics of capitalism. It was just tightly controlled capitalism that served the interests of the uh, the state's uh, views. The state got to tell it what it could do, what it couldn't do, and where the money should go and what they would support. Yeah. Um, I was just going to yes. say that – I was just going to say that uh, – and of, out of all the destruction that we've been talking about, all these different situations, it can't get any worse than it is in Germany. Obviously, that's the, comp- the country that's been uh, bombed the most by everybody that was involved. There were uh, you know, pitched battles for months for the last year of the war. So out of all these places that are bad, and don't get me wrong, they're desolate. None of it is as bad as Germany. But, but Germany is that key, you know, because America is going to be thinking about Germany's future in a, in a slightly hopeful, positive of a way. And every time Stalin thinks about Germany's future, he thinks that he reacts with fear. So again, Germany is the key and everybody who's coming at this views it differently. And that's just going to be one of the many things that they will not be able to agree upon. So um, getting back to the capitalists, um, Mm -hmm. the Nazis were capitalists. And of course, all the monarchies were capitalists. Uh, so after uh, the only country involved in World War II that wasn't capitalist, of course, was the Soviet Union. <laughs> so after World War II, people are exploring new ideas. They're creating leftist parties, which, of course, are going to be supported by Moscow because who else is going to support right. left-leaning parties? Right, and who else can? No one. No yeah. one. Exactly. Well, yeah, no, no one else can or will. Right. And these parties were in a good position to seize political power, especially places like Greece and Italy and France, where they had huge political credibility because of the resistance campaigns against the Nazis Ah, that they had run. Right. Uh, But we've talked about this before, how particularly in in Greece, the British came in and crushed the uh, socialist parties Mm -hmm. uh, after they, quote-unquote, liberated (laughs) Greece um, because they didn't want that. Um, so these parties, though, were, were, were in a good position to, to get the support of the people and try and get power after World War II. And they, of course, talked about the economic state of affairs in Europe, which was obviously atrocious, and how we, we need to change things mm-hmm. to fix the situation because we can't go through another war like this. The capitalists have led us into two Right. World wars in the last thirty years. Uh, we we need to we need to make some changes. Yeah. Now, as you said, uh, people were doing it tough all across Europe. In France, you could only buy meat on the black market in 1947. Wow, bread was almost as hard to get. It was under huge rations. Um, it was hard to get and hard when you got it. Boom boom. <laughs> in Britain. Um, <laughs> In Britain, which obviously had suffered far less than most of Europe, yeah. despite 
having the crap bombed out of it for a while there. Right. The economy had hit rock bottom. Um, the once mighty British realm, even though it had won the war, mm-hmm. technically. Right. Uh, two years later, people were living on bare rations Jeez. in unheated homes, no electricity. So even they were doing it tough, and then, of course, the big winter hit. Um, so it's all well and good to talk about containing the Soviets, but what do you do if the people in Europe are starving right. and looking for new political leadership that only the Soviets really have any credibility in providing because they're the only power in the region that isn't capitalist or a capitalist monarchy? If I could just add a bookmark on to the end of the capitalist part of it, I was reading that in France and in Western Germany, um, despite the winters, um, the farmers were growing a decent amount of crops, but because of capitalism, they weren't selling it. Uh, they weren't taking it to the cities to sell it because they didn't like the prices that, that, that were there or the prices were too high and the people couldn't afford it because it's a laissez-faire process. So the point is, there was food around. It just wasn't getting to the cities where, where the most of the starving people were. So the system is clearly flawed. Somebody has to do something. And uh, I think what you were about to build up to is that the Americans in Europe, the ones that are on the ground, who are actually seeing this, who are witnessing this day in and day out, they get back, they get messages back to Washington and said, look, yeah, yeah, let's stand up to the Russians because that's the right thing to do. Communism bad. Yeah, yeah, we get all that. But things are so horrible here. We might lose anyway. We have to do something and we have to do something big and we have to do something fast. So as we're going to see, and I'll stop at this point, but as we're going to see uh, Secretary, the new Secretary of State, George Marshall, uh, Dean Acheson, Kennan, Assistant Secretary of State for Economic Affairs, William Clayton, they're all coming at this and they're saying that the economies of Western Europe need a boost and they need it soon. And so someone's got to do something. They're getting all this information and all the information's bad. Someone's got to do something or or all of this could slip out from us no matter how noble and good we think we are or or we plan on being in the future. Someone's got to do something now. Yeah, there was a there was a general feeling that uh, if something wasn't done to quickly pull the Europeans out of this financial crisis, mm-hmm. that they would probably slide towards socialism and yeah. end up in the Soviet bloc, right? Through choice, um, not force. Yeah, exactly, because they, they, they were looking for something different, a different way of doing things, a better way of doing things. Right. Now, the question then came up about whether or not the US should be spending money on fixing Europe. And mm. what we want to do is look at the different arguments for and against that that mm. were around at the time. Now, Truman thought it was common sense that they should spend – 20 or 30 billion dollars to keep the peace mm-hmm. over the next few years rather than spend 10 times that right fighting another war uh, keep in mind that world war ii had cost the united states somewhere in the vicinity of 350 billion dollars which was a lot of money back in those days <laughs> okay 
here's how one economist uh, I read put it in 1948. Right. Another war would cost considerably more, not only because the war would not be paid for out of additional output, as was World War II, but also because warfare is going to be much more devastating in the future. Mm. We can be certain that after the next war, we shall not raise our income from $70 billion, as it was in 1939 to $160 billion, as it was at the war's peak, and $205 billion in 1947. Even in stable prices, our income is up almost 75% since 1939. Another war should cost us at least twice the last war, say $150 billion a year over oh, five years. Right. Or if it is a knockout war, an optimistic guess would be the loss of half to three quarters of our income over a period of at least 10 years, or say $1,500 billion. It is well to ask whether we should take the prudent risk of spending $25 billion over 10 years in order to save $1,000 billion on the assumption that the stabilisation of a democratic Europe will contribute substantially to saving us from a war. That was Seymour E. Harris in the Journal of Finance, Volume 3, Number 1, February 1948, or what I like to call a little bit of nighttime reading. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know when you want to mention this, and I can edit this out, but during all of this, when you have all of these desperate needs, you have um, solutions that are could be big, could be small, but something has to be done. You've got, you could easily argue, the most experienced man that Washington has on the scene, in some ways, he was actually at Yalta, is about to ex exit stage left ju just at this critical juncture. Yeah, we'll get to that in a sec. But okay. Right. What I want to point out here is the the earliest thinking, as far as I can tell, mm -hmm. around what was to become the European Recovery Plan, known as the Marshall Plan, right. wasn't based on oh gee the people in Europe are starving let's give them some let's help them out. No, it was based on well listen if they slide into communism, then we're going to have to fight another war that's going to cost us a lot of money. So let's invest a little bit now to stop us having to spend more later. So it was a pure, right from the very get-go, the earliest yeah. talking about this, it's a self-serving argument. Let, it's not about humanitarian right. aid. Right. It's not a gift. It's about what's in our own best interests. Right. Let, let me play the American card and then follow up with a question. Um, I, I, at the very least, even though you, you're right, someone should have thrown in uh, millions of people are starving to death, but it would have been nice if they you don't even mean it to just throw it in there. But the point is, you're absolutely right. They're thinking about themselves. But having been through two world wars, just like everybody else, even though we were late to the party twice, it was still it still cost America a lot of money. And we had deaths, not as much death as other countries, but we still had death. So it, you can almost forgive them for going, let's not have another war that will lose even more people and it will cost us even more money. Let's, let's do something now to try to, to try to avoid that. And I can, I can give them a semi pass on that. But here's the question. Just because these people slide to the left, they form communist parties and those parties get elected and they're now in power. Why does that automatically mean? War. Does war have to be the end result of 
three or four more countries becoming communist. It, I, I mean, I know that that's their mindset at this point, but it, but it just it's just it would it would be nice if someone had stepped back and went, well, you know, it doesn't have to be war. We're just going to have to keep it on. We're going to have to change our containment policy a bit. Well, no, it did have to be war, and I'll explain why as we go. All right. And so this is the beginning of the European recovery plan. Now, it was conceived, as far as we can tell, mostly by our mate George Kennan. Right. The same guy who wrote the X article, the same guy who uh, came up with the idea of containment. It was one of, it was, this was his brainchild as well. But it was announced to the world by another George. George Costanza, which is right. why it's known as the Costanza plan. No, George Marshall, <laughs> who, as you said, was now Secretary of State. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned in the last episode, Ray, Marshall had just replaced Jimmy Burns, mm-hmm. the guy you were alluding to before. Right. Um, now, we'll talk about this in a second, but uh, getting back to Marshall, he was a very serious guy. Um, yes. Do you remember the story about the time when... FDR called Marshall by his first name. I remember that FDR had a nickname for the King of England, and then one day he he calls uh, the general by his first name. And if I remember correctly, the general so physically bristled that it scared FDR, and he never called him by his first name again. Yeah, apparently uh, FDR said something. Something. What do you think about that, George? <laughs> Marshall, Marshall, Marshall gave him a glare and said, "It's General Marshall, Mr. President." And he did. He called him General, or he called him Marshall for the rest for the rest of his life. But yeah, FDR yeah. had a nickname for it because FDR was royalty. He was an Amer- he was American royalty. He had a nickname for everybody, but not the fucking general. I'm, I'm, I don't know what his wife called him, but um, I'm sure there was a rank probably, involved. Yeah. yeah, probably general. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> so. What happened to Jimmy Burns? On, on January 6th, 1947, he was Times Man of the Year. A day later, he's gone from Truman's cabinet. Probably that, that was the death knell. <laughs> yeah, when you get time at Times Man of the Year, you're screwed. It's a, yeah. it's a bit like a gripper. If a gripper had been Times Man of the Year, you know, <laughs> he would have been gone the next day. He knew right. better than to yeah. let Don't that kind of shit Don't you give me that award. The fuck you. Don't you give me... Now, here's the part that's funny for me. We A couple, I guess, how, however many episodes ago, we talked about Burns should have been um, Truman's running mate. Burns should have been president. We get all that. But here, here's the truly ironic part. When... FDR dies and Truman comes on as the president because Burns had been at the Yalta conference. Truman just knew for a fact that this guy knew everything that happened at Yalta. He knew all the nuances. He he remembered all the agreements. So not only are you going to get all of his experience, his reputation, this guy's dignitas was incredible. He held so many different positions, including the Supreme Court. When Truman brought him on board, he just knew he was getting, getting an inside card into Yalta. Truman could not have been more disappointed by what uh, Burns could remember. But let's be honest, there were so many different speeches, so many different agreements, and so many different things that were changed. And they lost the fucking notes to Yalta, so no one knows anything. But the point is, one of the the, the bases for why um, Burns was brought on board didn't pan out. And like I think you said on the last episode, these two guys have just... 
they needed each other. They weren't really getting along, even though they agreed in a lot of ways as far as what they should do as far as the Soviets are concerned. They just, I don't know if it was egos or they both thought they, after a certain amount of time, they didn't need each other, but you just get the sense that they drifted apart. And when, and they're not equals. One's the boss and one, and one is the worker. Something's got to give and you know who it's going to, who it's going to be. Well, I think we've, we've seen uh, enough um, in the, last uh, previous episodes about the Truman-Burns relationship is that from yeah. the get-go, Truman looked up to Burns mm-hmm. and Burns looked down on Truman. <laughs> from the very beginning, <laughs> privately, yeah. Burns was yeah. telling everyone that Truman was Fucking a joke. dumb yokel. Right. Um, and then gradually, over the 18 months that Burns, Secretary of State, um, there's increasing tensions I remember he was uh, doing some negotiation off his own on, on his own bat yes. with the Russians. Um, don't do that. And Truman Truman pulled a Stalin on him. <clears throat> said you don't negotiate without getting my permission first. Now you have got to imagine that didn't go down well with right. Justice James Burns. Right. Um, so and and then I'm sure Truman was hearing from his inner circle that Burns was telling everybody who would listen that um, Truman was an idiot. It sounds exactly like Trump's situation now, right? It's basically his entire administration. It's like, (laughs) I don't think an equivalent, I don't think an equivalent of the Bob Woodward book came out during (laughs) those years, but if it had, it would have been very similar. It would have been, look, everyone inside of Truman's administration thinks he's a joke, he's an idiot, he's dumbass. Country Um, bunker, but yeah. uh, so Truman, Truman was hearing these things at least about right. James Burns, and so he was pushed out. The official reasons were his health. Aww, he was only sixty-seven, and right. his health can't have been that bad because four years later he became the governor of South Carolina. <laughs> that's my peeps. Yeah, that's your yeah. peeps. Yeah. Uh, uh, so where were you in nineteen fifty-one, Ray? I was still um, a particle or a substance in my dad's testicular uh, region. Fortitude! Testicular <laughs> fortitude! Boom! <laughs> Drink. Drink! Yeah. yeah. Drink! No, I, I just thought it was funny. You're right. So four years later, he's the, he's the governor of the state, and he was going on about white power this and white power that and segregation. But he is the one who um, actually started to uh, spend money on black schools and uh, infrastructure for the black communities because he knew if he didn't, the federal government was about to come in and do it, and they would do it their way. So um, it was it was very ironic that he was the one who did that. And and in South Carolina, he is still, he and Strom Thurmond are still looked upon uh, as heroes of the state. So again, very ironic that uh, he had all these great heights and then he comes down to this and then he's got to do something he really doesn't want to do, which is spend money helping the uh, the African-Americans in his state, which he didn't even want there in the first place. So it's been a hell of a ride for Jimmy Boy, Jimmy Burns. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and then he he uh, died in 1972 at the age of 89. So he had another 25 years in wow, him after 1947. with that. Oh, shit. Hmm. But so this is the guy, before we say goodbye to Justice James Burns uh, in our story, this yeah. is the guy that probably was responsible for the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's right. 
and he lasts 18 months in the job. He gets the job, immediately drops the only, yeah. the only two nuclear weapons ever used in anger, ever used in combat in human history at this point, and then literally almost the next day he's gone. So that was his contribution to... Jeez. To uh, American history was uh, Thanks, Jimmy. that, and then he's I'm gone. not happy with Jimmy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> George doesn't like Jimmy. Um, so it's quite obvious that he was pushed out by Truman, as was his predecessor, Big Steady Edward right. Statinius. Now, Truman at this stage isn't looking too good politically. Apparently, his reputation is pretty damaged. You remember we had the leaks about the Soviet spies, how the Manhattan Project had been infiltrated, the the Soviets weren't playing nice, the US economy is struggling, and that's a really important thing to understand at this juncture. Right. So in 1947, the US had 14% inflation. Ooh. They had rising unemployment. Right. Now, this is all tied to the end of the war. So Yeah. As um, as our economist said earlier, the economy in the U.S. went from seventy billion uh, GDP uh, in nineteen thirty nine to two hundred and five in nineteen forty seven. Huge Jeez. growth over right. the course of the war, driven, of course, by military Keynesianism, spending government money to boost the economy. But then the war ended, and that stopped. Um, and it started to play havoc with their economy. Um, the military budget was massively reduced, which meant all of that money that was going into making shit in American right. factories stopped, stopped flowing. And people were like, oh, shit, we need to fend for ourselves now. I actually dug up, as part of my research, Truman's uh, budget that he delivered to Congress in January 1947. And here's his opening paragraph. Mm -hmm. To the Congress of the United States, as the year 1947 opens, America has never been so strong or so prosperous, nor have our prospects ever been brighter. Yet in the minds of a great many of us, there is a fear of another depression, the loss of our jobs, our farms, our businesses. But America was not built on fear. America was built on courage, yeah, on yeah. imagination. Mm -hmm and an unbeatable determination to do the job at hand. The job at hand today is to see to it that America is not ravaged by recurring depressions and long periods of unemployment, but instead we build an economy so fruitful, so dynamic, so progressive, that each citizen can count upon opportunity and security for himself and his family. Note that I said him because we don't want the women working. <laughs> That's no good. Where will that lead? Can't have women in the workforce. Who Not knows what will happen? Vote. Right. Hanky-panky, Garden of Eden, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Nor is prosperity in the United States important to the American people alone. It is the foundation of world prosperity and world peace, and the world is looking to us. Nice. So, trying to, trying to put a positive spin on it there, Harry, but... <laughs> Acknowledging yeah. that people were worried about the state of the economy and people weren't really buying his optimism. According to Walter Lippmann, mm -hmm. who I've mentioned a number of times, he was regarded as the greatest political commentator of his day. 
and tended to lean to the right, but was well-respected. Um, I've read a ton of his stuff over the last six months, and um, he was, you know, he was a, he was a smart dude. And and everywhere right. he turned up in the papers, everyone calls him the greatest political mind of his day in terms of a journalist, I guess. But according to Lippmann, Truman at this stage was an embarrassment. Ooh. He actually said that Truman's bravado and quick decisions were a facade for an essentially insecure man filled with anxieties. Damn. I mean, yeah, but you have to say it out loud. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Any other presidents you know filled let, with bravado? Let me, let me take a guess. Um, um, my, my, my administration has done more in the last two years than any <laughs> other president in the history of this country. Nay, the world. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my god, that was that was such a great moment in history, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Oh they my literally god. the United Nations literally laughed at your president. Yeah. I, I mean, don't think that has ever happened in the history of the United Nations. But but my favorite part was when you go back and watch it and you know what he's going to say, the look that he fixes them with to me, says it all. It's like, okay, I'm going to give my toughest, most serious, my my most focused look because I'm about to deliver something that might make you laugh out loud, and and it does. But the point is, but but he just looks at him and he and he says it's as presidential as he possibly can, and they still laugh. But why would you make that comment? Obviously, it's not true, and obviously, everybody knows it's not true. Why would you even put it out there? But he did. so Fox has a nice. So Fox has a nice clip to run for the for <laughs> the mass true. for the base. On loop. On did loop. you hear? Yeah. Did you hear when when Fox ran that? No. They 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 played uh, and they put this out on Twitter. I think like this. Um, they shot out that clip, then they cut out the laughter and just skipped to the next clip. After the laughter had died down, they edited out the laughter. Oh, nice. <laughs> Barry and Stan, you brilliant genius bastards. Uh, oh geniuses, God. yeah. So that was Lippmann's assessment of Truman at the time, um, that he was an embarrassment. He'd had to fire his own Secretary of State for undermining him. That's how, That's how much how control he had over his own party, yeah. how much respect he had within his own ranks. Yeah. But but I would say that, um, I mean, Truman, yeah, I mean, he's a country bumpkin. He's from Missouri, whatever. But, I mean, he did play a lot of poker. He could be not a deep thinker, but he could he could think in steps. He could think in stages. I think that's more than what Trump can do. And so, and he did have his pride and he did take himself seriously. So to get rid of someone like Burns is a pretty impressive thing when you can take someone who has that street and political cred and just bounce them out the door. You know, people might not think much of you, but they'll start to fear you. And so, I don't know. I mean, Truman certainly, um, he tried to he tried to fill FDR's shoes as best he could. But I wanted to add one more stat to what you were saying. How about how bad things were in 1943 when America is giving its all in the war? The unemployment was at an incredibly low 1.2 percent. You know, either either you're in the military or you're working in some factory or you're farming or whatever. The point is, practically everybody in the country is working. By 1948, it was around four percent, which again is still low. But compared to that 1.2, you do 
probably get the sense out in the country that there are more and more people that are unemployed. Things aren't as rosy as it was. And what is the government going to do about it? Yeah, I mean, you've got to recognize that there were millions of people involved in the armed forces and, and right. preparing weapons and equipment for the armed forces. Now that's over. So all of those people yeah. now have to find jobs again. So but, uh, but doesn't they're expecting that, massive unemployment. They are, but doesn't that at the same time, I mean, and this is unrealistic, of course, but you're the president, you're in the White House at the moment. The bar has been set for you by FDR and by the prosperity, if you will, or at least the productivity of the war. Even though the war is over and people are happy that it's over, they're still expecting to a certain degree, status quo. And clearly that's not happening. And so that is going to factor largely into the building Marshall Plan. We have got to do something to take care of this economy so the American people will take care of us in a good way by vote keep by keeping us in office. Yeah, and that's obviously the point that I'm leading to here. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he's fired Jimmy Burns. There's an election coming in 1948. Uh, he's not looking very good. Uh, Truman. Um, yeah. But Marshall, on the other hand, has huge, huge testicular fortitude. Huge. Boom! <laughs> Drink, bitches! Yeah. And huge respect. Yeah. Now, so much respect, in fact, that his appointment as Secretary of State was unanimously approved by Congress. Mm-hmm. I don't think How they even bothered having a... Yeah, like 12 minutes... Um, they didn't even bother having a hearing like normal, like Kavanaugh's going through at the moment. They were just like, uh, who? George Marshall? Sorry, I mean, General Marshall. General Marshall. Uh, fuck, fuck yes. Like, quick, give him the key. Let's go. You Everybody, left George and right. Ma- George Ma. It, yeah. it, literally the entire process took under an hour. And this is when the Republicans were controlling both uh, houses of Congress. So this this guy had dignitas that nobody could touch. And and he and remember, I think we said on the last show, he was sent to China to try to work between the communists and nationalists. Obviously that didn't work. And and it's not that he failed, but it's to me it's an impossible situation. And he actually was retired for six whole days. He was retired for six whole before Truman taps him and go, look, I need you to step up. And because of his sense of duty, he says, and this is George, this is typical George Marshall. If you've ever read his words, his writing, my answer is in the affirmative. If that continues to be the president's desire. And then he says, my personal reaction is something else. So he's basically saying, I don't want to do it. Either I don't like you. I'm fucking tired. I wanted to retire. I promised my wife. But if you're asking me to serve, I will serve because that's who I am. To me, and I and please don't make the comparison it's the way it sounds, but that's almost like General Kelly, the chief of staff of Trump. Like, I'll do it because I want to serve my country. But fuck me, I really don't want to work with you. But I will do what I have to do. I don't know if that's true of General Kelly, but it certainly is true of George Marshall. Now, I don't know. I mean, as you said, it wasn't a failure, but, I mean, he didn't he didn't negotiate a peace between Chiang Kai-shek and Mao, so no, it, it his was mission a, failed. It was a failure. I just think it was right. I think it was not possible. Possibly. But there was also a report that came out around about then um, about the intelligence and operational failures that allowed the Pearl Harbor attack to take place, and some of the blame was being laid on Marshall for that too. So his reputation wasn't spotless at the time, although I, I 
um, should point out that modern scholars give Marshall a pass on that one. Um, but here's something that there was one thing that Truman and Marshall had in common. Do you know what it was? Truman and Marshall had in common. Um, no, tell me. They were both Freemasons. Ah, I love conspiracy parts of the show. Go ahead, tell me. (laughs) And according to Lolly Zamoyski, former uh, senior KGB analyst, the Freemasons were responsible for the outbreak of the Cold War. Wow. He wrote... That's... Freemasons have always controlled the upper echelons of government in Western countries. Masonry, in fact, runs rem- runs all of bourgeois society. The true centre of the world Masonic movement is to be found in the most Masonic country of all, the United States. Um, and this is his explanation of the Cold War. The first ever atomic attack on people, the use of atomic weapons for blackmail, and the escalation of the arms race was sanctioned by 33rd degree Mason Harry Truman. The first ever call for the Cold War was sounded by Mason Winston Churchill. The onslaught of the economic independence of Western Europe, disguised as the Marshall Plan, was directed by 33rd degree Mason George Marshall. Truman Mm. and West European Freemasons orchestrated the formation of NATO, Don't we owe to that cohort the instigation of hostility between the West and the Soviet Union? So there you have it. All makes sense now. Wow. Um, Now, I've met some Freemasons. Have you ever met a Freemason? Not not to my knowledge. They're they're fucking crazy, man. They're up there with Mormons. (laughs) You look into their eyes and you go, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're you're crazy. They actually, yeah. I was invited. I was invited <laughs> to join <laughs> the Brisbane Freemasons about nine or ten years ago. Um, I got a tour of their uh, temple, their their Masonic lodge in Brisbane, which is a which is a terrific building. It's re- really beautifully uh, built, mm-hmm. and uh, I, you know, I was taken in by a guy I knew and and met one of the higher ups, and they were doing the whole secret handshake. This is Cameron. Uh, he's he's a friend of ours, kind of thing. <laughs> and I just had to laugh at them. Wow. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh "You're talking God. to the wrong guy, kids." I did a you? podcast with the other guy about <laughs> the Masons, but no, they were harmless. But well, just like it's just it's like really trippy, weird, crazy. Slightly homoerotic man shit, man. It's uh, really oh, weird. In. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about the Freemasons. But let me just let me just take a stab at something. If I was a Freemason, and you were a Freemason, and we got orders from a higher ranking Freemason, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And they said, "We want you to not make any more jokes on your podcast and and to be as serious." historical podcast and if you want to stay a freemason you have to do what i say and i'm I'm not using that as a parable like jesus just because someone's a freemason and they come up with something like their marshall plan or whatever does that mean the freemasons order them to do it and they had to comply i think that's a bit of a stretch Uh, but i don't know anything about their society (laughs) i don't think that's how it would work but i think i mean the freemasons have a view they have a view like sure. it's like it's like being a Mormon. 
Like Mormons will tell you that it's not like the quorum of the 70 uh, come down and tell you what to think. It doesn't work that way in these sorts of organizations. Right. The fact that you remain as part of it means you tend to agree. It's self-selective. The, the, it's, the, the oh, fact that you stay gotcha. in it means that you kind of buy into the worldview that's being propagated. If you don't, okay. uh, you fight it or you try and change it and then they crack down on you and you get uh, um, punished kicked out um, and, and you or you leave or you go oh screw this you, this I, I don't agree with this anymore and I'm out if you stick around and you're part of it now I don't know I did look up this I mean I I, I, I know, came across this Freemason thing and these guys in some book and I went what really and I looked it up and I, I, I went to various websites the New York Masons website and there's another Mason website list of famous Freemasons and both these guys Truman and uh, right. Marshall are definitely on there. Marshall apparently Truman was a Freemason since like 1909. Um, Marshall was wow. only taken in in 1941, I think, something like that. Apparently, one of the really? top Masons met Marshall and just went, "Boom, you're you're a Mason." Um, so yeah. I don't know how committed yeah. Marshall was to the whole thing, but he was in there. But then again, <laughs> sort of everyone in, in there was, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it was like a just a, I think for a lot of guys back then and maybe even today it was just a networking businessy networking thing they they're all a bit crazy Christians but that wasn't unusual in the US in the first half of the 20th century right. to be part of a Christian brotherhood group with secret handshakes um so I don't know but it, it, anyway I mean I'm not taking right. any of this stuff seriously it's just a bit of fun any hoodles um, where are we at? Sure. We're nearly we're nearly at an hour, but let's um, let's wrap up. We are at an hour. Um, well, the next bit is we want to get into Marshall's yeah we are June nineteen forty seven Harvard commencement speech. Um, let me just play a little bit of that yeah. um, because it's worth listening to. I need not tell you. But the world situation is very serious. That must be apparent to all intelligent people. I think one difficulty is that the problem is one of such enormous complexity that the very mass of facts presented to the public by press and radio make it exceedingly difficult for the man in the street to reach a clear appraisement of the situation. Furthermore, the people of this country are distant from the troubled areas of the earth. And it is hard for them to comprehend the plight and consequent reactions of the long-suffering people of Europe and the effect of those reactions on their government in connection with our efforts to promote peace in the world. So, as you can tell... Not the not the world's not the not the world's greatest communicator, uh, George Marshall. Um, <laughs> no General Reagan. Marshall. Yeah, definitely no Reagan. <laughs> but um, this is where he starts launching in public the idea of what would become the Marshall Plan. He hints in this speech at the idea of European aid, but it's just a hint. 
So little of a hint that most of the media the next day ignored it. He says, Mm -hmm. Europe's requirements for the next three or four years of foreign food and other essential products, principally from America, are so much greater than her present ability to pay that she must have substantial additional help. Otherwise, he said they would face economic, social and political deterioration deterioration of a very grave character. Anyway, we'll pick up, I think, in our next episode, more of Marshall's uh, speech and uh, mm-hmm. sort of follow it from there, Ray. Um, yeah. That's, uh, that's that. That's that. That's it. Absolutely. Testicular fortitude. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. 